Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. An excellent wife who can find? This is a hypothetical question posed by the author of one of the most famous marriage poems in the Bible, Proverbs 31. And this poem is intended to establish the rarity and value of a godly wife in marriage. And any man who's married for even just a few years can recognize this. And to prove the point, the author goes on to compare the worth of such a discovery to finding precious treasure. He says, she is far more precious than jewels. Apparently, a godly wife is not only something important, but also valuable. And it says something, by the way, that our society has come to a place such that marriage is so consistently devalued and degraded that the Bible spends so much time highlighting and spotlighting and praising something that the world at large constantly undermines. This thinking doesn't just infect society at large, by the way, it has infiltrated the church as well. It isn't any coincidence that speaking statistically, one of the best tests or predictors of a man's success and well-being in, lo in life is a good marriage to a good wife. But if I can change the question or reframe it slightly this morning for the sermon and not talk about motherhood from Proverbs 31, but the mother of all virtues. Using this question asked in Proverbs 31, if a, if a godly woman is the most important and valuable of human beings, humility is the most important virtue or quality of mankind. Like an excellent wife, the value of humility is above rubies. Scripture praises the priceless quality of wisdom. Where shall wisdom be found? It cannot be bought for gold or silver and cannot be weighed for its price. Job 28. But if wisdom is a crown, the brightest jewel in wisdom's crown is humility. Scripture itself in Psalm 119 is described as something which is both sweeter than honey, the best inheritance, and better than thousands of pieces of silver and gold. But humility is the sweetest note in Scripture, for by it Christ willingly went to the cross. It is by far the most important and valuable inheritance that you can give to your children. And because of what the Bible teaches about it, humility is better than 10,000 pieces of gold. You see, if pride is the ultimate sin, humility is the most excellent and the most important virtue. So that's the title for my message this morning, The Importance and Excellence of Humility. And our text talks about both of these, how important humility is and how excellent it is as to your life with Christ. So let's begin then by reading God's word and asking him to bless to our hearts both the reading and the preaching of scripture. 
Let's pray that we would have humble hearts before the very word of God. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Let us pray. Great God, thank you for this precious text of Scripture. Thank you, speaking personally, that it has been uh, a precious verse for me for many, many years. But God, we have it before us this morning as the word of God to your church. So whether we've heard it before many times, memorized it even, or whether this is the first time these, these words are reaching our ears, we pray that Christ would speak to his church on the importance and excellence of humility. Amen. Humility, first of all, is important, and there's two reasons that it's important. First of all, humility is important because humility uses what I'm calling a faith-based logic. A faith-based logic. Now, I'm using the word logic sort of like a, a computer code. If, if you're into programming or or you've coded before, or you've taken a class in computer programming like I did and failed miserably. It was, it was a bad fail, too. Like, I knew, like, three or four weeks in that this was going to be an F, and I just kept on going. I just, I'm sorry to uh, Peter. Uh, you know, P Peter's my favorite programmer in the church. There's a number of programmers. Ed, Ed does coding for a living, too. So I'm talking about, like, a computer code the way that instructions are delivered. So the way that we receive instructions, the logic is faith-based. And that's why humility is important. Logic is, is a way of running things. It's the way your life runs. And so depending on the code or the logic that's running through your mind, if it's not faith-based, then you will have no, you will not thrive in this life the way God intends. The Bible says to be careful how you walk, and it's not talking about the actual physical steps necessarily, although some of us need to be careful where we bring ourselves and what we do. But walking in the Bible is, is shorthand for a way of life. It's, it's the way you're thinking about everything that's important to you. And if we're to be careful how we walk, then we need to be careful with our way of thinking, that it's faith-based. What is the faith-based logic of humility? I'm thinking of it as a, a ladder with four rungs. Step one, humility admits that, that there are limits to myself, that I am not the measure of my own existence. I can't find everything I need within myself. I am not an island, but I am part of an entire species of human beings. I'm part of creation itself. But step two, humility goes farther and recognizes that hope or comfort and the solutions that we seek aren't, also aren't found merely in other human beings. I may realize that I can't solve all of my own problems, and so I have a cabal or a team, a, 
a gang of friends who I appeal to and look to and call and text and, and lean on when times are difficult. Or my, my favorite go-to resources, uh, inspirational literature, podcasts and videos of people who know how to do life. But nowhere in creation can you find lasting peace and relief from what's sick in society or even what's sick in your own mind. So step three in the ladder of humility, you're not content or perfect only with a generic concept of things beyond this life. You know that it isn't just a vanilla spirituality that you need or some contact with the divine. True humility clings and confidently holds to the idea that God is a personal God. He is not only the high and holy God beyond the stars, but he is imminent. He is present and personal in our lives. He is near to the brokenhearted in the person of Jesus. But there are many religions that hold to the value and the, 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 the importance of Jesus, that believe in a holy God and in, in the man Jesus. The final rung on the ladder of humility is not only believing that Jesus lived, that Jesus lived a humble life, that Jesus is a good example, but the inspiration of Jesus comes from knowing that he lived for me the life I could never live. Constantly focused on myself, absorbed with my own concerns, marinating and saturated in my own pride. Sometimes even disguising my pride in the form of humility. This man, Jesus, never did that, not even once. But he didn't just live the most perfect human life for himself. He lived it in my place. He lived it for you. You see, by Christ, you have a whole new identity. You're not only taken out of yourselves, you're baptized in him, you're placed in Christ so that his death is your death and his life is your life. He lived, died, and suffered the judgment that you deserve so that your destiny is forever tied to his. And that's the top ring on the ladder of humility. And the faith-based logic of humility sees the emptiness of my life apart from others, sees the emptiness of my life apart from God, sees the emptiness of my life apart from Christ and apart from him in particular as the Savior of sinners. That's what makes us Christian. And that's the faith-based logic of humility. Faith, then, is in this God revealed in Christ, manifested in the flesh, holding not only that he died for you, but he lives for you. He is alive at the Father's right hand, ruling and reigning as we speak, actively interceding and reordering and arranging your chaotic, pride-filled, self-centered life. He is doing this for you if you believe in him. That's the faith-based logic of humility. Humility makes no sense otherwise. I mean, you don't have to be very long in this world to know that it's dog-eat-dog. But a faith-based logic lifts you out of that that grind, it, 
it gives you a new mind where you can see with new eyes and a new heart where you can feel differently than you felt before. You enter college or enter grad school or deal with work politics or your marriage or your parenting challenges with a whole different way of looking at things, this faith-based logic of humility. That's why it's important. But it's not just important because of this faith-based logic. It's important because it avoids a terrifying alternative. And here I'll remind you of our text from last week. I began this morning at verse 6. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he may lift you up at the proper time. He may exalt you. But look back at verse 5. The theme of humility began as a general charge to the church, as we saw last week. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. And then what does it say? For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humility is important because it avoids the terrifying alternative that instead of being graced and gifted, embraced, loved, cared for by God, God opposes you. God is your enemy. I think this is very helpful because when you're studying a scene as an artist, a tree or a, a historic building or a mother with her child on a blanket having a picnic or a fish, or a beautiful animal in the distance. Whatever the object of your sketch or your, your painting, it's, it's critical that you don't just look at the object itself, but at what is around that object, which artists call the negative space. In fact, you could even trace the negative space first as a way of seeing more clearly the object of your attention. And I learned this when I was learning to draw from my stepmom. We were out at a, at a park in Boston, and she says, have you ever learned about negative space? I'd taken art classes in high school, but I'd never heard of negative space. And all of a sudden, instead of drawing the tree, I drew the air around the tree. And the tree, almost of its own, came into being. And I'm not a great artist. So what I'm telling you is, for a moment, let's not look at humility. Let's look at its terrifying alternative. Life lived opposed by God. When I was young, I was a runner, and, and with some of my running friends, we, we had a joke where we put our hand in front of our, our face like this. It's like a... Uh, uh, a man plowing his way through the storm of a rain, a rainstorm or a snowstorm. We were running up a hill, and we'd make a low drumbeat noise with our voice. Da-na-na-na, da-na-na-na. And I'm climbing this hill. And it's, it's a joke among, among runners, but when you're living your life climbing the hill opposed by God, it is not a laughing matter. And so take a look at what's difficult in your life. Where are the friction points? Where's the bottleneck? Where are you frustrated? It may be that your frustration 
is because God is opposed to you. You see, God gives grace to the humble. He, he puts oil in the engine for the humble, but for the proud, it's nothing but opposition. Calvin calls this warning on our text in 1 Peter 5.5 5, as a celestial thunderbolt. I couldn't help think of Brandon who was in his house at, I don't know, one or two in the morning with a computer keyboard on his lap when his house was struck by lightning. Now, Brad and I were talking about this this week, and we didn't know, and we looked it up. It's something like three million volts of energy go through a bolt of lightning. And we were calculating how much volts of energy are in Gloucester County, and this is like the entire Gloucester County use of electricity. So Brandon is sitting here. I wasn't there. He told me about it. Keyboard on his lap. The house is struck by lightning. The lightning goes through the entire electrical circuitry of the house into the plug where his keyboard is plugged in, through the keyboard, across his lap, and out the other side. And he's sitting right here, smiling. Now that's a miracle. You can call it science. I call it salvation. Calvin says this is a celestial thunderbolt. It is a, a lightning strike of God to know that God Almighty is opposed to you. It's God's grace that, that Brandon was spared complete electrocution. And in his judgment, no one will be spared whom he is determined to oppose. Calvin goes on to say we are to imagine not one hand of God in our text. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. He says, no, we are to imagine two hands of God. The one like a hammer which beats down and breaks in pieces those who raise themselves up. And the other which raises up the humble who willingly lower ourselves down. So the negative space here but I want you to look at, not humility, but its terrifying alternative. The warning is not just being neutral towards God. I'm okay with God. I, I believe in God. You know, the guy upstairs. It's not a, a, gener, a generic sort of Christian spirituality. When you refuse to humble yourself under God's mighty hand, you are not escaping God's mighty hand. You are actually waging war against God. You know, I think of one of my favorite verses that explains Christianity in a nutshell. It's one of the most famous verses in the Bible. John 14, 6. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And then this. No one comes to God except by me. When the lightning strikes, the only safe place to be is in the arms of Christ. There's no other relationship with God. There are two hands and two ways of relating to God. One, humbly, humbling yourself 
under his mighty hand in Christ, and two, the terrifying prospect of warring against the creator of all that there is. There's a great illustration of this in the Old Testament, someone who made war against God long ago. His name is Pharaoh. And Pharaoh learned that God's mighty hand, which could have been, had he yielded and come under the mighty hand of God in humility, could have been a source of great blessing to him. It could have been a shelter and a refuge. Instead, God's hand to Pharaoh became an agent of destruction, misery, and woe. Exodus 3.19. God says to Moses, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go except by a mighty hand. And that mighty hand unleashed not one, not two, not three, but ten increasingly devastating plagues upon the nation of Egypt, the last of which is too horrifying to even mention, and yet it's there. The plague of the firstborn, Pharaoh's own child, the so-called divine heir to the throne of Egypt. The child, the, the divine child was struck down and all the humble children of the Israelites were spared because of the, the lamb's blood on the lintel and the covering, hovering presence of God in mercy and grace. To Pharaoh, who refused to bend his knees to Almighty God, it was a strong hand that sent Israel out of Egypt. But to his people who understood faith and trusted in him, they avoided the terrifying alternative of humility and found in God, instead of a hand of death and destruction and damnation, they found a hand of redemption, rescue, and love. But isn't Peter writing to Christians? Isn't this a letter from the Apostle Peter to Churches in Asia Minor scattered, the elect exiles? Why is he warning believers about being opposed to God, about opposing God? I'm afraid far too often that Christians do not humble ourselves according to the gospel that we have believed, but we live functionally like Pharaoh, knowing all that we do, and yet we, we drop into a self-centered, self-reliant, arrogant frame of mind where God tells us, shows us clearly with, with indication after indication, answered prayer after answered prayer, and we go on independently like a, like a toddler refuses his mother's altogether reasonable requests. To illustrate my point, consider the exile. Speaking for God in Jeremiah chapter 21, verse 5, the prophet Jeremiah says this on behalf of God. I myself, God is speaking to his people. It sounds like he's speaking to Egypt here. Listen, I myself will fight against you with an outstretched hand and a strong arm in anger and in wrath. Could it be that the covenant-keeping God the God of mercy and compassion, of forgiveness, grace, and love, that God could be opposed to his people in anger and in wrath? Could it be that he is opposed to you, a blood-bought, born-again Christian? 
because of choices you've made or that you will not make? That's the bad news, but the good news is that when we do humble ourselves, God's discipline ceases. Like a father disciplines his son, so, so the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. The Puritans had a saying, when you kiss the rod, it falls from his hand. And the discipline of God ceases when we, when we cease to be turning our back against God or raising our fists against God. And instead we embrace God on his terms. It's called surrender. Surrendering to the will of the Lord. And so in Ezekiel chapter 20, 33, after the exile, there's this note of hope. I will once again gather you with an outstretched hand and a mighty arm. The same outstretched hand and arm that thrust the people out of the land for their idolatry, that same hand, when God's judgment and discipline had, had run its course, reached out again with the love of a father and gathered them again to himself. And so, people of God, you have a choice. You can listen and yield to the God of your salvation, or you can insist on your way. This is especially important for teenagers. Now, your parents are not that smart. We know it. But you are at a place in your life as you're defining who you're going to be and where you're going to do and who you're going to marry and what you're going to study if you're going to school or what kind of work you will have. And so you're learning to tune out other voices and, and listen to your own thoughts, and that's critically important. The last thing, you know, we didn't have children to keep them. We had them to release them into the world. It's, it's our greatest privilege to do this. But in your growing sense of independence, do not make yourself autonomous from God. Or you will be fighting against God. Humble yourself under his almighty hand. That's the importance of humility. But what about its excellence? Its excellence for two reasons in our text. One, because by humility you rely on perfect timing. And two, with humility, you experience the love of God. Let's take a look at these two points. Humble yourself, verse 6, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, Peter says, he may exalt you. I've mentioned from this pulpit before the difference between clock time and people time. Now, I know Joe is from Costa Rica and... Dr. Ikpa is from Nigeria. They get this naturally. Depending on what culture you're from or your background, you're either more clock-driven or people-driven. And when I was in Uganda, we waited two and a half hours for the pastor to arrive to start the wedding. He was two and a half hours late. And the only people who had a problem with that were the white people in attendance. Can you believe this guy? How rude. Well, of course, we're, we have no idea. There are potholes in Uganda the size of Volkswagens. 
He's coming from two and a half hours away. Who knows, maybe the main road was flooded out and he had to go an hour and a half out of his way. Well, the bride was a half an hour behind him. I was reminded of this because I was talking to our former intern, Chris Sandino, on the phone, who's preparing to be a missionary to the Dominican Republic, and he brought it up to me, and I'm like, yeah, I, I, I've been there. But, well, Chris is half uh, Dominican, but he's all American. <laughs> so he's in the DR going like, Pastor, this, this is going to be an adjustment, because I'm punctual, like I like to be on time. So he may be Dominican in his blood, but he's an American in his brain. What's the point? The point is a watch that's not accurate, whether it's an internal clock or the microwave in my kitchen this week when the power went out, a watch that's not accurate is of no use for planning your day. But if you had a perfect watch, if you had the perfect time, then you could be very, very blessed in the planning of your day. And Peter says that God has the perfect time. Humble yourselves. How long? It doesn't say. It just says there will come a perfect time when He will lift you up. How long do I need to lay down here, Lord? He says, I love you. You are mine at the perfect time, at the proper time. I will lift you up. What is the proper time? I think in the context it can refer to two things. One, clearly we're, we're looking at the end times. And I mean the end of the end times. The, the time when Christ pulls back the curtain and He appears in bodily form in that image of, of Revelation where the Son of Man is riding on a white stallion with a sword coming from His mouth. And He slays the wicked with the breath of His mouth. That's the proper time. That's, that's when He will exalt you. That's when all who are humble will inherit the earth. The, the rightful inheritance that is ours as the people of God will become evident to all who sees that at the name of Jesus, every knee, both the wicked and the righteous, will bow before the Son of Man. That's the proper time when He will exalt you. But I think there's another aspect to the proper time. Because Christ's incarnation comes in the fullness of time. I love Galatians 4.4. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those of us who are under their law's curse. It might have seemed to Simeon or to Anna or even to Mary and Elizabeth and Zechariah and others that were anticipating the coming of the Messiah. It might have seemed that it came too late but when he came, all of their prayers sung about the, the timing of God at the arrival of Christ. So the proper time means both in the future when Christ returns to right every wrong, but it means that that proper time has already come. The proper time is now. You say, well, pastor, I'm, I'm still under this load. I'm still in a dysfunctional relationship. I, I still hate my job. I'm still struggling with addiction. I can't seem to kick that sin. He has exalted you. You may be under a load, but in Christ you were seated in the heavenly places. And we are more than conquerors 
through him who loved us. He has given you everything you need for life and godliness in the scriptures and by the Spirit and within the church of Christ and with your family. And you are situated in an incredible place to live, the United States of America, the greatest country on earth. Despite all of our faults and all of our struggles, we have what we need. What is it that you need? I wonder in, in looking at your life and all that's missing in your life, if you're forgetting what's present, the Lord of glory is yours and you have a friendship with the King of Kings. So humility is the most excellent virtue because it has the perfect time. And that isn't just in the future. It's now. It's today. But not only is humility excellent because it gives us a perfect watch. But by humility, the most excellent virtue, it's excellent because with humility, you rest and experience the love of God. By humility, with humility's excellence, you experience the love of God. Look at the text. Verse 7, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. The care, the love, the affection, the fondness of God, the friendship of God, the, 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 the real, creaturely, spirit-forged communion and fellowship with God, which is impossible apart from humility. The excellence of humility is that you have a relationship with Almighty God through Jesus Christ. But there's a catch. Because we're told that we are to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God in verse 6, and in verse 7 tells us what this looks like. What, what does it mean, Peter? How do I humble myself under God's mighty hand? How do I know that I'm humbling myself under God's mighty hand? How do I get at the the care and the love and the compassion and the mercy and the friendship with God. And the answer is the first part of verse 7, casting all your anxieties on Him. Could it be that your friendship and fellowship with God is destroyed by your anxious cares? Yes, indeed. Could it be that you're not just worried you're proud. Yes, indeed. And I say this with, with some hesitation because the anxious people I know, including myself at times, the last thing we need to be told is now do we have to worry about being proud? But the fact of Scripture is your anxieties causes God to oppose you your worry makes you an enemy of God and God an enemy of you. Your worry chokes off the love of God so that you do not experience the care that is promised to you in Scripture. The word cast is only used one other place in the New Testament. It's when the disciples, through their cloaks, they cast their cloaks 
on the back of the donkey on which Jesus sat as he rides triumphantly into Jerusalem and the crowd is throwing their, their cloaks on the path that that donkey is walking. And just as an illustration, what a beautiful picture that you're throwing your cares upon the back of the very beast, the royal beast, which carries the triumphant king into the city of the king, even Jerusalem, even Jesus about to be crucified. You see, to cast means figuratively not to actually throw something, but to transfer your cares upon God. I received a payment for a little part-time thing I did recently of $85. And the, the one who paid me transferred that money via PayPal into my account. And so you look in his account and it's $85 less and mine is $85 more. And that's what it means to cast your cares upon the Lord. Except instead of cash, we're talking about cares and worries and fears. Your bank account is filled with them. You're earning interest on these things. You've got so many, you're willing to lend them out to your friends. And God says you're to drain your bank account and lay it on the back of that donkey. And Christ is riding it into the city. And then he will dismount and mount the cross and die for each and every single one of those cares. But how many can I transfer? I said, drain your bank account. Is that true? Can I really give him every single fear and care? We had some work done on our house this week, and it's a beautiful job. It's a new driveway, and it's sparkling, and I'm just... I was walking with some of the girls' friends and they were completely making fun of me, sort of, you know, this is a real dad moment. Look at my driveway. Yeah. But as part of the project, I had hoped that my contractor would take away a big pile of bricks that I had. These are old cement-covered bricks. You know, I thought I could use them and I can't. And he looked at me and he says, I can do that for you. So we get a giant wheelbarrow and we're loading the bricks up one by one into this wheelbarrow, casting the bricks into the wheelbarrow. And I pick up the wheelbarrow at one point, I'm like, that's enough, don't you think? And the fellow that was helping me says, no, we can put more in there. So we got to the point, not where we're just level with bricks, but now it's rounded over with bricks. And I pick it up and I said, sir, that's enough, isn't it? He says, no, we can put more in there. And so we start positioning the bricks so that they're stuck to other bricks because you can't just toss it in the wheelbarrow anymore. And it's now not only mounded over with bricks, but strategically towering with bricks. And I said, sir, is that enough? He said, not until they're all gone. And we put five more. I don't know how we got five more. And this fellow with two of his friends took this brick down my hillside, not on the new driveway, and loaded it into the truck. And that, to me, is a picture of how many of your fears you can give to Christ. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Almighty God says, you can put more. I can hold more. These shoulders can hold more. I bore the sins of the world on the cross, and I can carry your fears and cares as well, 
All of them, not one of them, need you carry by yourself. As we conclude this morning, I want to quote for you a favorite passage in the Old Testament, Micah 6, 8. It's a great life verse. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy. That's our horizontal. That's our human relationships. To do justice and to love mercy and then to walk humbly with our God. There's that walk word again. It's the faith-based logic. It's a lifestyle that is characterized by God is big in my life and I am small. He must increase, John the Baptist said, and I must decrease. What a beautiful motto for our lives that we would be the kind of people that are spoken of in Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in time of trouble. Peter is writing to a troubled church and I'm speaking to a troubled church. And the waves of your own sin and the and the compromise of culture are lapping over the boat and you're not sure what to do and you're filled with anxious care. And he says, cast all your anxieties upon me because I care for you and I give grace, sufficient grace to those who humble themselves under the mighty hand of God. My hope for this church would not be that we would be a large church. My hope for this church would not be that we are a rich church or well-known on all the social media platforms. My hope for this church would not be that we are a church-planting church, that we are a diverse church, a socially aware church. My hope for this church is not that we would be a welcoming church or a preaching church. My hope for this church is that we would be a church under the mighty hand of God and that He, in the perfect time, will lift us up. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your Son to die for our sins. Thank you that this is the Christian hope. And some of us have been too easy with it. It's a bumper sticker or something that we chose long ago when we raised our hand in a meeting or prayed a prayer. God, being a Christian isn't simply a matter of receiving salvation once. It's living contentedly, restfully, in a beautiful, gospel, carefree way under the mighty hand of God, especially when times are tough. So, Lord, I pray that you would refresh your people with the grace of humility. He gives grace to the humble. Give us the grace that we need. But, oh, God that one who refuses to trust in you. I pray that you would not relent, that you would oppose him or her until he comes to his senses and escapes the snare of the devil and humbles himself under the mighty hand of God. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the church house located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us.
VCR website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.